Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Part four of our series for the Hillsdale Dialogue. And that music means the Hillsdale Dialogue. The last radio hour of every week on the Hugh Hewitt Show is underway with Dr. Larry Arn. Usually all things Hillsdale are found at Hillsdale.edu, including the course that we are playing over the radio. And which is and if you're watching on Salem News Channel, you can watch it as well. And boy, people love this. They love hearing Dr. Larry Arn not just talk to me. They enjoy that a lot. But they love hearing him teach. He is, uh, a couple of years back, he got 12 Hillsdale seniors who had already been through a course on Aristotle's ethics. And they did it again in a four-camera shoot, meaning they had four cameras taping everything, the reactions, the interruptions, Dr. Arn's teaching, his probing. And it's about one of the great books of any era, Aristotle's ethics. And what has been going on the last three weeks, this is week four in a series on the ethics, is that we've been bringing you that series in the course of the summer when Dr. Arn is away from the campus of Hillsdale and I've been traveling about, we said, let's grab that and bring it to the radio so that you can hear how to teach. And people who like it the most are teachers who are getting ideas. So that's how you teach. And that's how a great book is offered up. And that's how I had to be doing it. So here is the first part of the fourth installation of the ethics in the Hillsdale Dialogues with Dr. Larry Arnand, 12 Hillsdale students. Everything we see, horses, dogs, cats, cups, clouds, uh, we are, we're always ranking them by whether they're good or not. Whoever made the sculpting, the sculpting is not responsible for its own good. The sculptor is responsible both for the good of the sculpting and for his own good because we are the makers of our character and we do that by making choices character means uh, comes from a word that means to etch or engrave you're always making choices all day long and there's always some temptation to do something that you think might be a little questionable a pleasure that you might not properly indulge a pain that you might avoid whereas really it would be better if you endured it. Uh, we work in a college, and so very common is uh, toward the end of the term when you're exhausted, you don't really want to study. And yet that's when you really need to study. And the question is, do you study anyway? And that doesn't depend on your will. Something's telling you, you should do this. And Aristotle says you form your character by whether you listen to that voice of the good or not. What is character? It's like the state of the soul that arises from the choices one makes. State of the soul that arises from the choices that you make. Okay. Anybody disagree with that? Remember about etching and engraving. In other words, you have to change yourself. So we're going to try to figure out how that works. And to do that, we're going to to begin with the beginning of book two of the ethics. And if somebody reads the first paragraph, there's some cool stuff in there. 
Now, since virtue is of two sorts, one pertaining to thinking and the other to character, excellence of thinking is for the most part, both in its coming to be and in its growth, a result of teaching, for which reason it has need of experience and time. While excellence of character comes into being as a consequence of habit, on account of which it even gets its name by a small inflection from habit. A small inflection. Uh, the two Greek letters, eta and epsilon, are associated. Eta is a vowel and epsilon is a consonant. And the difference between them is a punctuation mark above the first letter, which is either an eta or an epsilon. Epsilon means habit, something you do over and over. And uh, character, that means this thing we've been talking about. It's actually transformative to change that from a consonant to a vowel because what it does is it involves you in it now, an expression of a serious intention restated many times. That's what it means. How do you make a good choice? No simple answer, right? But one thing is the motive. You have to do it to do the right thing, especially the beautiful thing. You also have to estimate the circumstances. Well, an act is uh, courageous if it's done for the beautiful, unless it's grossly foolish. You can imagine some movie where some soldier stands up and charges a whole army of tanks and gets blown away. And that's brave in one way, but in another way, it's ridiculous. So you don't want to do that, right? So there's a whole bunch of things that make for a good choice. But the point he's making here is that you go from habit to character by making choices and making them well. And that's what changes you. Okay, read on. It is also clear from this that none of the virtues of character comes to be present in us by nature, since none of the things that are by nature can be habituated to be otherwise. For example, a stone which by nature falls downward could not be habituated to fall upward, not even if one were to train it by throwing it upward 10,000 times. Nor could fire be habituated to move downward, nor could any of the things that happen by nature in one way be habituated to happen in another way. Therefore, the virtues come to be present neither by nature nor contrary to nature, but in us who are of such a nature as to take them on and to be brought to completion in them by means of habit. So uh, read that last sentence again because there's a tangle in it that's worth exploring. Therefore, the virtues come to be present neither by nature nor contrary to nature, but in us who are of such a nature as to take them on and to be brought to completion in them by means of habit. So now, that's an interesting thing, right? Because how can a thing uh, not be by nature if it's not contrary to nature? And this is a phenomenon that happens only among human beings. We've already uh, encountered another instance of it when he says that the city comes to be not by nature, but not contrary to nature. He didn't say that there, but it's the implication. And why? Because... It's something you have to do, and we have volition. We can choose, and we might not choose. Bad if we don't choose. It will be contrary to our nature if we don't choose well. If we don't start cities, we won't have 
the excellences that are possible in civic life, which are naturally human and important to us. And if we don't make good choices, it will violate our nature, but it's not natural in the same sense as our growing or as an oak tree growing is natural. The, the realm of volition in which human beings live is all important. You can take a thousand examples, they're everywhere. But uh, if, you do, if you commit vicious acts, often uh, abuse people, uh, which will turn you into a tyrant, and uh, you'll be hated and unhappy, drink to excess, turn you into a drunk, be unhappy, you can do those things. Then you're harming your nature. Whereas if you make good choices, you accord more completely with your nature. But don't mistake that you are not an agent in the doing of it. This book points over and over again to human freedom. When we get to choosing, we'll see how that works. It's really great. Okay, page 23. Uh, so somebody read with the bottom paragraph. First, then, one must recognize this. First, then, one must recognize this, that things such as virtues are of such a nature as to be destroyed by deficiency and by excess, as we see, since one must use visible examples as evidence for invisible things, in the case of strength and health. For excessive gymnastic exercises, as well as deficient ones, destroy one's strength, and similarly drink and food, when they come to be too much or too little, destroy one's health, while proportionate amounts produce, increase, and preserve these. Okay, so... He's using a physical example and therefore a kind of metaphor for something he says goes on in the soul. You know, in uh, sports, there's not being in shape and there's training so hard that you bust up your body. Overtrain. Don't go anywhere, America. We'll be back with part uh, two of the fourth installment of Dr. Larry Arn on the ethics he is teaching this. It's all available if you want to binge watch it, as I did. All 10 of the lessons on the ethics taped at Hillsdale College two years ago are now available over at hillsdale.edu. All of the prior Hillsdale dialogues dating back to 2013, I believe, there are more than 400 of them. All of them are available at hillsdale.edu or hewforhillsdale.com or just type in iTunes and Hillsdale dialogues and you'll get them in reverse order. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. It is part four of our series on the ethics. Dr. Arn teaching 12 Hillsdale College students. All 10 segments, all 10 episodes of this course are available at hillsdale.edu. This is the fourth episode in the course, the second segment of it. We find Dr. Arn deep into the ethics by this point, talking with his dozen Hillsdale seniors about it. Don't go anywhere. Just listen. This is how you teach. This is how you learn. This is how you actually make your drive time redemptive. Stay now for part two. There's a middle place in physical training. So now apply that. Carry on reading. And it is the same way also with temperance and courage and the other virtues. Someone who runs away from and fears everything and endures nothing becomes a coward, while someone who fears nothing at all but goes out to confront everything becomes rash. Similarly, someone who indulges in every pleasure and refrains from none becomes spoiled, while someone who shuns them all, like a boorish bumpkin, becomes, in a certain way, insensible. So, temperance and courage are destroyed by excess and by deficiency, but are preserved by an intermediate condition. 
So that's the, uh, there's a lot in the ethics that's a Goldilocks argument. Not too hot, not too cold, just right, not too hard, not too soft. And that's an interesting problem, right? Because uh, how do you make a rule to tell which is which? How do you know? And the answer is, there isn't any rule that you can make. Like in this case of training, it's not too hard to know that if you run until you're exhausted and your shins hurt and you can't run anymore, then you've run too much. And uh, if you don't run enough and you're exhausted when you start and you can't keep up, you haven't trained enough. Take moderation. Um, There isn't any iron rule. You're seeking a right amount. Indeed, it's the business of life to seek the right amount. And there's all these obstacles and temptations and confusions that are in the way. But if you think about it and you keep your soul in order and you keep your direction, your attitude uh, uh, right, then you'll make better choices. And Aristotle is saying that's how you home in on this. And another point to understand is it gets easier while you go. Is school easier than when you started? Yes. Yeah. You probably showed up, wow, it's so awful. Can't do this. Now you know you can't. It's just hard. So you see what you've gained. You have a better soul than you had before. I will tell you in our line of work, because, you know, you guys never get any older, only we do. Uh, but the joy of it is watching you grow up and uh, the, ga- the gains in all the virtues are uh, enormous and observable. I just had a question about, you said, like, how do we find this? Like, if you keep your soul in order and if your motives are correct, then we'll be able to do it? Because it seems like there's a temptation to talk about it as if it's kind of like a spectrum and you're just trying to hit the middle point. But it doesn't seem like that's exactly what he's saying. It's not like just navigating between these two extremes. So the point is, that's right. You're not looking for some measurable middle. You're looking for the thing that's true. Choices. Uh, in Aristotle, every intellectual operation is, uh, is measured by its truth. And, and see, hard choices. Just remember, if the choice seems easy, unless you're missing something, it is. But that, that's not common. Choices often seem difficult, right? Often. You guys are going to graduate pretty soon, and you're going to get a whole bunch of hard choices in front of you. And you're thinking about it already, and it doesn't just snap like that, that it's simple, right? So what is the right thing? Whatever you choose, for it to be the best choice, it must seem, and in some sense be, the most beautiful choice. One of the uh, digressions in book one that we didn't talk about is... uh, It's very famous, too, but I'll mention it now. Uh, Aristotle says, you don't want to seek the precision of geometry when all you're doing is carpentry. These things can't be measured as precisely as that. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with the uh, third segment of installment four of Dr. Larry Arnn and the Hillsdale Dialogue. This week, they're well into the ethics. Dr. Arnn and his 12 hand-picked Hillsdale students. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. If you tuned in a little bit late today and you're saying, oh, Hugh's back from Ohio. No, I'm not. Before I left for the land, 
I pre-recorded this with Dr. Orange assistants and the assistants of Kyle and all the wonderful people at Hillsdale. All things Hillsdale, including your application to attend that great college at hillsdale.edu. All of the video courses, all of them, are available for free at hillsdale.edu. Imprimus is available for free at hillsdale.edu. Hillsdale is about educating the country and citizens everywhere, whether or not you're enrolled. But if you want to be a student there, you got to apply. And boy, it's getting harder and harder and longer and longer lines. So go and get your application in early at hillsdale.edu. This is the fourth installment of our course on the ethics. Dr. Oren taught this, and it was filmed with great care, precision, and beauty, actually, when he taught it a couple of years ago at the President's House at Hillsdale uh, College's campus. He gathered 12 students who had previously studied the ethics with them, and they went through it again, and it was another learning experience. It's how you learn to teach is by listening to this. And as a side benefit, you'll also learn how to be a student, and you learn a lot about Aristotle and the ethics along the way. So join us as we listen, or you can be watching on the Salem News Channel if you've downloaded part three of installment four. So you mentioned that uh, we should choose what seems to be the most beautiful choice um, and that we should also consider our experience. Um, But for someone who has not already habituated themselves um, towards virtue, how can we make that proper choice, especially if we are still sort of clouded by the apparent beauty of pleasure? Well... Uh, first of all, that's what education is for. Uh, uh, grown-ups are supposed to help you with that. Alas, they fail way too often now. But the second thing is, um, one of the points, when we get to choice, you'll see, come to find out, you know. Mostly, you know. It's like the meaning of nouns, that the, the being of nouns that you perceive, and that it doesn't depend upon people telling you the name for them. The name, you, you need to know the name to know the language. But if, you didn't, if somebody didn't give you a name, you'd make up your own name. And you'd make up a different one for different things. This is like that too. The good. When, when Aristotle says that everything, every voluntary human action aims for the good, he's saying we want that. And the reason we want that is because There's order and proportion and truth in that. Whereas in uh, evil, there's falseness. The Nazis organized trains to ship people off to slaughterhouses. Everybody knows that's wrong. The Nazis knew that was wrong. Why? They tried to cover it up. They didn't proclaim it. Come and join me, all ye peoples of the world. We're killing all these Jews and gypsies and socialists and everybody else, right? A lot of other kinds. Don't, they didn't say that. And which of those guys uh, in the, the Nuremberg trials before about 15 of them, I think, were hanged, which of them stood up and said, yeah, we did this and it was the right thing to do? They know. It's like Lincoln said, about uh, slavery, Douglas says, uh, Stephen Douglas says, I can take my hog and my buckboard into Nebraska, but not my slaves. The federal government has to protect my property and my hog and my buck- buckboard, but you say, Lincoln, not my slaves, why not? And Lincoln says, good question, if there's no difference between the hog and the buckboard on the one hand and the slave on the other. But you know, they know the difference down in the South. 
because they pass laws hanging slaves for murder. And they don't do that for pigs. And they pass laws making it illegal to teach slaves to read. And they don't do that for pigs. They know what they are. So that point then is, don't underestimate what you know. And the whole question of choice is going to hang on this thing that in your heart of hearts, you know. And if you choose against that consistently, that is the only way to silence that voice. And if you listen to that voice, it will become strong and it will drown out everything else. That's the, that is the specific action of character building. That's what it does. But it's also hard, too. And it's not hard because you don't know. You don't have a sense of what the right thing is or in what direction the right thing lies. It's hard because it's confusing and because very often you have to give up something. Something you want. Something desirable. The reason an act of courage is hard to imagine is because you might die. And you're not made to die, you're made to live. The soul rebels against it. On the other hand, are you made to live in shame and cowardice? Everybody knows the answer to that question. C.S. Lewis writes in uh, Mere Christianity when he's talking about the moral law, you don't see people running around congratulating themselves on their cowardice. (laughs) Now, how do you get to the place where in a moment of panic, you don't do that? And the answer is practice. Go to page 24. So at the beginning of chapter 3, read that first sentence. As a sign of the active states of one's soul, one must consider the pleasure or pain that accompanies one's deeds. For someone who refrains from bodily pleasures and delights in this very thing is temperate. Someone who does so while feeling burdened by it is spoiled. And someone who endures terrifying things and delights in them, or is at any rate not pained by them, is courageous. But someone who does so while being pained is a coward. Okay, is that plausible? In other words, he's saying to you, it's a barometer. You know, Kate asked a very good question. How do you know what the right amount is? It's not just exactly in between. It's something different. How do you know, right? Well, practical wisdom discerns, especially when it becomes experience. But here's a kind of a test. He's asking you to look in yourself and say, in what do you take pleasure And in what do you take pain? What's a burden to you? And what's uplifting to you? And just feel yourself and think about yourself. And then he goes on to say something kind of radical, right? He says, if you refrain from bodily pleasures and delight in it, that's temperate. And if you do so while feeling burdened by it, it is spoiled. It's not the virtue of temperance. We're going to skip it, so I'll explain it right now. Um, There's a kind of a continuum from vice to virtue. And vice is committing yourself through the development of a character and active condition toward doing bad, toward uh, evil, 
But Hitler was like that. When he was surrounded and the world collapsed on him after he'd been ranting and, uh, and uh, only partially in touch with reality for weeks, he shot himself. He hated himself because he hated everything. Uh, one of his last words were, the German people have proved unworthy of me. Uh, he destroyed himself. And uh, he's his own enemy, right? That's fully vicious, and that's rare, right? But then, on the other side, is virtuous. Winston Churchill was a very virtuous man. I don't think he was a perfectly virtuous man, because that's hardly possible. The huge things we know he did, he was brave, and he was eloquent, and he made superb choices about Hitler and about tyranny in general. He was uh, honest, incredibly, right, to a fault. A great-souled man, I think. And, uh, and that's what you want, right? In book four, there's a description of the great-souled man. And uh, he says he never hurries. He doesn't care much for honor, but he'll accept it because that's all people have to give him. He doesn't lord it up over people. There's no need. He doesn't really value much of anything except his friends. And if he takes action, he's always looking for a great one. If it's costly, great cost, he wants to do the most splendid things. And uh, nothing seems overwhelming to him. See, that's a, that's a vivid picture, I even think, by the way, it's a partial picture, and that it is replaced by other examples of the combination of virtues that are superior to it later. But it by itself is awesome, right? Because when you read a description like that, you want to be like that because you can see that's a human being behaving as we are made to make. The human being in operation as they should be. Uh, just to try to clarify the point he's making, because say that I've had a piece of cheesecake and I'm tempted or I desire to have another one. It seems to me that he's saying that if I refrain from having it, that would already seem to me, at least, to be virtuous. But he's saying, no, that's not virtue. You're somewhere in between virtue and vice. Oh, yeah, I didn't finish my point, did I? Because you're just refraining from it. <laughs> but, you're, but it's burdening you. You're not being delighted by your refraining. Yeah, so if vicious is out here and virtue is out here, there's a whole bunch of states in between. There are two main terms that are used for it. And the one I always remember is incontinence, and that's a little bit distracting. But, um, uh, but we use it anyway. Outside vice, the next thing over is you do the wrong thing, but you're powerfully pulled by the right thing. That's better than vice, even if it, it uh, results in the same action. And then the next one over that is uh, continence. You're pulled by the wrong thing, but you resist and you do the right thing. Both of those two states, by the way, are uh, they're at war with themselves. Right? Everything's a struggle. And of course, if everything is a moral struggle, that's what you're thinking about. And that means you can't think outside that. See, that's why you want to get rid of that struggle if you can, but not to the place of becoming vicious because that's the worst. And so finally, if you could become a virtuous person, what will be immediately apparent to you is the pleasure of doing the right thing and doing it because it's the right thing. And, you know, cheesecake is uh, not uh, an opportunity for 
beautiful action, you're not going to go down in history for, you know, resisting the second piece. When you're young, uh, you know, you're tempted to things that you think you shouldn't do. And so you're likely to, you know, experiment because you're just figuring things out all the time. Everything is very confusing, isn't it? And so one of the things you'll try is, well, forget about that. I can't be happy unless I just do it. And then you find out that doesn't work, right, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> My eldest daughter, when she was a little girl, was a really brilliant little girl and very impulsive. And if she didn't get her way, she'd run to her room and throw herself on the bed on her back and kick her feet up and down on the bed. And I'd stick my head in there having told her she couldn't do something. And she'd be crying and I'd say, what's wrong with you? And she'd say, you won't let me be happy. Why can't you just let me be happy? And I said, I would say, you're too young to be happy. You have to learn to be good. <laughs> and she was a splendid little girl. Of course, adorable. And, uh, and, and, you know, talented and all that, right? She had all the qualities. Beautiful. But she was young. She didn't know how to be good. One of my favorite students I've ever had is a kid named Ryan Walsh, who was a clerk on the Supreme Court and a very smart boy. And uh, we were in this section of the ethics teaching a class. He suddenly went, okay, this is stupid. And I said, what? And he said, how do we do this? He was very inspired by the ethics. And he's very determined to become a fine human being. How do I do this? Do this right now. And I pointed him to this passage. And I said, work on that. See? And that's your point, right? That's kind of a hard way to put it. And that means he's telling you something. Uh, Let's go back to page 25. Uh, In that first full paragraph, there's one of Aristotle's favorite and famous and frequently occurring list of three. He says there's three things that make us choose something. Three attractions. What are they? What is beautiful, advantageous, and pleasant? It's an early list of what attracts us. And when he's talking about the dispositions in the soul, that's a pretty noble list. There isn't anything wholly corrupt in there, especially after pleasure is redeemed and made into something higher and better. And remember, just as he says in the first sentence, every voluntary thing we do seems to aim at some good. Now he's saying, in the soul... There's a wish for those things. So just to clarify that point then, so you're saying like, um, back to Juan's point, he would say that the person who does the right thing, even while like their pleasure isn't necessarily aligned with it, it's not that they're like, obviously doing a bad thing or not living the ethical life, but they're just like living it at a lower degree of perfection than the man who's actually virtuous and who desires well, the beautiful and, thing. And remember, you always have to, uh, anytime you're describing choices... You need details. The circumstances matter. Uh, Like everyone at this table, I work too much. And sometimes I want a break. Often, I should take one. Why is it not right to take a break when you want to? Maybe you got something to do that really needs doing. And then, how bad is the thing that you've neglected if you took a break? How weary are you? Degree, how much, amount is always involved in these choices. And the truth, Aristotle would say, of a practical action is found in those details seen in light of some ultimate good. Right? 
And, and it changes all the time. And that means practical judgment, which we're going to study, involves both those things. I'll give one more example because this is a pretty example. Uh, we like to, and, and when we talk about ethics, we like to ask all kinds of crazy hypotheticals like this. Would you kill 10,000 people to save 10 million? And it's not a meaningful question, really, because a bunch of other stuff has to be known. And one of the things is all important. If you got into a terrible situation where you could know enough to know, which is extremely unlikely, by the way, that your sacrifice of 10,000 people would save a million, you would have to hate that. Any, any element of rejoicing in being in that position of power is evil. And good people don't want to do things like that unless they think they must. And then the second thing is they have to be a good estimator of things like that. But it's an estimator. And then such a decision and only then could be true. Right? But, and, and true in this world of carpentry we're in, not the world of geometry. One of the reasons you guys to grow up and be what you can be uh, can't just memorize a bunch of rules. You, you can't settle human things that way, right? There are rules, Churchill said. There are rules about that kind of thing. And those are rules of moral intention and accurate judgment of the best thing that can be achieved. And uh, that's what you have to cultivate. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.